Thank you, Kent. Well, good morning. It's good to be in God's house today. We, um, as you can tell, Richard and Carol Dickerson are in New York City. You can't tell that, but you can tell they're not here. And they are on vacation, well-earned and well-deserved vacation, uh, seeing their, their boy uh, play a show up there and seeing some of Carol's family up there. But uh, Richard said, I don't know if in 20 years if we've ever had a guest pianist, a guest organist, and a guest worship leader, but uh, this morning we were three for three, and I think they hit it out of the park, so thank you so much, Lisa Crawford and Kent Tyler, and to Gene Aldridge, of course, uh, fantastic. I got to receive Lisa as a new member a few months ago, and uh, I had no idea that she played, and she plays really well, too, so that's, thank you. She sings in our choir, and she said, uh, yeah, I just had to learn piano when Richard was going to be out and Carol and just took it up. But no, she's been playing since she was five years old. So incredible uh, gifted people we have in this church. I love it. And wonderful testimonies from our children and, and youth. Thank you, Andy and Trey, for the, the, the work that you've done with our, our young people. And really the heroes of these trips, I think, are these volunteer chaperones. So thank you so much to Scott and Sarah Collier, to Jennifer McDaniel, uh, and to Julie McGlasson and Connie Bushy and... Am I missing anyone else? Yeah, they deserve applause. It's awesome. Give up a week to go and, and be with these, these kids and, and invest in them in this way is just incredible. So they are absolute saints uh, and heroes of the faith. This morning, we're going to close our series on the book of Acts with uh, one more look at how the gospel message spread from Jerusalem with this ragtag group of failed uh, Hebrew school dropouts, right? This group of, of poor fishermen who, who carried this gospel message into the world and changed the world forever because of the Holy Spirit who indwelt them as they went telling, going, not knowing where they were going, telling the truth of the gospel to a world that desperately needed to hear it. And some of these people ended up becoming these great leaders. And, and one of them in particular who we've been talking about is, of course, the Apostle Paul, the one who planted churches all across the, the Near East and then all the way into Asia Minor and then all the way to Italy, to Rome, where he ended up. Now, I was saying last week how about a third of all of the text in the book of Acts is comprised of speeches. There are ten major speeches that are delivered in the book of Acts and of course, the Apostle Paul gives six of those. We looked at one last week, and we're going to look at another one this week. Last week, we looked at one that he gave to the Ephesian elders. And today, we're going to look at one that he's giving in defense before the king of Judea, King Agrippa II. So how did he end up before the king of Judea? How did he end up on trial? Well, let's set this up a little bit before we dive into our text. We talked last week how on... Paul's final missionary journey, on his third missionary journey, he knew that he was supposed to go to Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem not knowing what he would find there, except that trials and hardships and imprisonment awaited him. He knew that in Jerusalem, the Jewish authorities hated him. He was a turncoat. He was a traitor. They had, had given him authority to go and persecute the, the church, the way, the Jesus way, all around uh, the Judean area. And he had become instead the most vocal proponent of Christianity in the world and perhaps the greatest human missionary to ever live. He was a, a, anathema to the Jewish authorities, to the Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem. And now he was headed there 
knowing that he was going to encounter stiff opposition. And of course, when he gets to Jerusalem, they, they make up some lie. They see him with a, a guy from Ephesus in Jerusalem, not at the temple, but just in the city. And they say, he's defiling the temple. He's bringing this Greek guy into the temple. They didn't see him in the temple, of course. They just saw him in the city. And so they falsely accuse him. And he's immediately seized by a mob at the temple when he goes to worship at the Jewish temple. So he's on trial by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish officials. And while he's on trial, he brilliantly plays off one sect against the other sect. He has the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He raises this this question about the, the doctrine of the resurrection. And of course, a riot ensues, right? They start fighting each other. And Paul's like, oh, no, this isn't good. And the Roman authorities have to swoop in and, and, and take him into custody for his own safekeeping. Otherwise, they would have torn him to shreds. So they, they take him into custody, and he's tried by the Roman authorities, by the, the governor Felix, who, of course, finds no wrongdoing that Paul has committed. But he tries to appease the, the Jewish officials, so he offers to send Paul back to Jerusalem. They had, they had brought him up to Caesarea, to the Roman province there to try him. He says, well, I'll, I'll send him back to Jerusalem. You guys can do what you want to, which is a death sentence, right, to send him back to Jerusalem. So instead, Paul says, no, no, no. I was born in Tarsus of Rome. I'm a Roman citizen by birth. I have that right. I appeal to Caesar. Every Roman citizen had the right to appeal to the highest authority in the empire, the emperor himself. So Felix, the governor, is forced to let him go to Rome. But the problem is he has no formal charges to, to give to the emperor based on Paul's life. So he, he just kind of lets Paul sit and rot in prison. And he's chained to a guard there that I'm sure he's witnessing to all the guards the whole time, telling them the gospel. And he's not sure what to do with him. And then Felix, who's just a horrible governor, gets replaced by a new guy named Festus. Festus tries to understand what's going on with this Paul situation. He's been there for two years in prison. It seems like Paul's own people, they, they want to kill him, and the Romans don't really know what to do with him. So there's this kind of conundrum. And now it's, Paul, now it's Festus's problem. And he's smart, and he wants to fix this mess. He's a go-getter. But he can't find any actual laws that have been broken by Paul. So he, he says, this is kind of a religious dispute, not a legal thing. And I, I don't know much about Judaism because I'm a Roman, but the, the king of Judea was Jewish, King Agrippa. And he was making a state visit to Caesarea to see Festus, the Roman governor. So Festus says, perfect. King Agrippa, you can help me. I got this Paul guy I don't know what to do with. I need some help. I don't understand this whole Judaism thing. What's going on here? He tells Agrippa all he knows about Paul's background, and he's trying to figure out how to charge him so he can get rid of him and send him off to, to Rome. And so they decide to hold a, a grand hearing in the audience hall of the palace there in, in Caesarea. And Paul gets permission to speak and defend himself before the king. And so the king, who's the, the king of Judea, right? He's a Jewish, very pious king. He's known as a pious Jew, he, he gives him the opportunity. Look at chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, a Jew, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs 
and the controversies of the Jews. Jewish politics were a mess in Palestine. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And so he, he dives into his own testimony. He tells him his whole background, how he was raised in a strict pharisaical Jewish home, and he excelled in Hebrew school. He was incredibly gifted scholar. He, he went to Jerusalem to study with Gamaliel, the, the leading rabbi of the first century. He was so accomplished in following the law, in, in his purity, in his obedience to what the law said, until one day, on a dusty road to Damascus, Paul had an encounter with the living, resurrected Christ that would change his perspective forever on everything. He was blinded, and three days later, he received not only new lenses, but new eyes with which to see the world. From that point on, Paul would give his life away for the sake of the gospel, and in doing so, he would find his true life and his purpose and his calling. He would proclaim the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the anointed one, the one who was promised to come and save God's people. And not only God's people, but Paul was appointed to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That's everyone who's not Jewish, right? So let's pick up his speech in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, since Jesus Christ called me to do this, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those right there in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Paul immediately obeys Christ's call to, to spread the gospel right there in Damascus. He stands up in the synagogue and he says, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But his message was not only put your faith in Jesus Christ as the propitiation for your sins and you will have eternal life. His message was also bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Once you're going your own way, following the ways of this world and what you think is right and best, the ways of a man seem right to him, but in the end they lead to death, Proverbs tells us, right? That you turn to the Lord and you, you follow him. Your whole trajectory for your life changes. Therefore, may your actions and all of your deeds be in accordance with that new trajectory. Bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Re to repent means to turn from following your own way and to go into the light of the Lord. May your actions be in keeping with that turning, with that whole new trajectory, with that whole changed perspective on your life now. We must live differently as God's people now, right? The gospel bears itself out in life change, right? Actual life change in deeds that show forth the truth of the gospel in our lives. Therefore, we're, we're different. We're different from the way we used to live. We're different from our old lives. We're different also from the world around us. We're different from the prevailing dominant culture in which we dwell every day. This culture that is ruled by the power of the prince of the air. It's a culture of sin, a culture of sadness, a culture of despair and hopelessness that we say, no, we have the light of the world, the true light. Let us bear fruit then in keeping with our repentance. Keep going, verse 21. For this reason, he says, 
for this reason, because I dared to share the hope of the light of the world, the truth and the grace of the Messiah with the people who were outside the Jewish faith, for that reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Remember, they, they thought, how dare you bring a Greek guy into the temple and defile it, which he didn't even do, but they grabbed him and, and took him under arrest for that. Verse 22, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer. Isaiah 53. And, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people, yes, but also to the Gentiles. That's the gospel, right? That the light of the world has come for the whole world. Just like Paul, we too have the help that comes from God, and so we also must then bear this good news, bear this light to the whole world, great and small, regardless of, of what kind of ethnicity or background they may come from. This was all part of God's plan from the very beginning, right? Yes, it was God's plan to form a, a great nation. From Abraham, he raised up the nation of Israel. And that, that was awesome. But that wasn't, that wasn't the end of God's plan. The end of God's plan is what he says in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. He's, he's speaking to his servant, the Christ, the Messiah here in this verse. And he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant just to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel only, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. God's saying, yeah, it's, it's great to make a nation for myself, but that's too easy. It's too light of a thing. No one's going to be like, wow, what a great God. Just by making a nation, pff, I can do that in my sleep. <laughs> what I'm going to do is, is be a light for the world. Distant shores, all the tribes of the earth are going to be blessed through me and through my servant, Jesus Christ. That's so much more epic, so much more glorifying to God than just focusing on one people. It's fascinating, too, how this, this idea of inclusion was, was so uh, crazily uh, received by the Jews in Paul's day. Back in Acts 22, when Paul was first arrested in the temple, and he's dragged out by this angry mob of, of Jewish officials in the temple courts, and he's put on trial right then, he gives a defense to all the people there. And, and back in 22, let's on the screens here, verse 21, he, he tells them, He, the risen Christ, said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Oh, up until this word, they listened to him. Up until this word, they listened to him. But then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Up until this word, Gentiles, they listened to him. But now he says Gentiles and he's worthy of death. Up until this racially loaded term, Gentiles. Those were who, who were considered unclean. Those who, who were considered unworthy. Those who were considered on the outside of the covenant promises of God, are now to be offered co-heirs, co-heirship, co-inheritance, right? An heir is someone who gets the inheritance of the Father. 
the Jewish officials who heard that said, whoa, whoa, no. That means that they're like my brother and my sister. That means we share in the same family of faith. Paul says, yeah, that's the gospel. That's what it's all about from the beginning. All of a sudden, all the, the officials' power, all their, their specialness, their control, their mechanism for, for, for keeping everything in line the way they wanted to because of their genealogical status, it all flew out the window. You know, I got to have lunch with, with Dr. Bill Sherman uh, on Wednesday last week, and, and you know his story. He was pastor here from 1967 to 1997. And I've heard that this church has a great legacy of, of racial reconciliation in Nashville. But to hear it firsthand from, from the man at uh, lunch was, was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. He said that his, his sixth sermon ever here in January of 1968, Debbie was here. She has a small girl about my daughter's age that he, his sermon was called Red and Yellow, Black and White, They Are Precious in His Sight. In 1968, think about that. And, and the next morning, he said he had a couple of incensed deacons in his office saying we don't need that kind of preaching in here. And then a couple of years later, Nashville finally, in 1970, 15 years after Board, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education made it illegal to segregate public schools, Nashville finally complied with the law and began busing to certain schools in order to integrate Nashville public schools. It was an incredibly tense time here in Nashville. And what did Dr. Sherman do? He reached out to the local African-American congregation, 15th Street Baptist Church, and said, let's hold joint services. Let's do swaps where your congregation comes to our place and we go to your place in the midst of this crazy, tumultuous time. And it wasn't easy for the African-American pastor, Enoch, to say yes either. He said, people are furious at me over this. I'm getting angry phone calls from my own constituents as well as from other people outside the church. Dr. Sherman said, me too. One reporter from the Tennessean said, you're either crazy or <laughs> you, uh, you know, really are, are, are bold and brave. And uh, Dr. Sherman said, yeah, I think it's probably a mix of both. And, and they did it. They did it. And it was, it was big news. It was huge news in the whole city because it was so radically different from the culture. The church thrives best when it's least like the culture around it, right? It, the church here at Woodmont served as a model of what the gospel is supposed to look like in the midst of a culture that said, keep them separate. That's never been the way of Jesus. It's never been the way of the Bible. So this church stood up and said, no, this is what gospel community looks like as a model to the rest of Nashville. It's really important that we continue on that legacy work, isn't it? Some people will always be scandalized by this kind of, of radical gospel message. When Paul says the word Gentiles again in this speech now in chapter 26, Festus becomes unglued. Look at verse 24. As he was saying these things in his defense that the gospel is for all people, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. Agrippa's a Jew. He knows what I'm talking about. And to him, I speak boldly 
For I am persuaded in my heart of hearts that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. Paul's not crazy. He's, he's boldly proclaiming truth to power. He's speaking truth to the most powerful force on earth at that time, which was the Roman Empire. He says to Festus, look, this is all public knowledge. These are historical events that are rooted in fact and in history. It's rational what I'm saying to you. And it's not done in the shadows of the corners. King Agrippa knows about Jesus. It, it caused the, the biggest turmoil in Jerusalem in the history of that whole town. And, and that's why I'm speaking about the public truth to him. The, the leading missiologist, one of the greatest thinkers and writers of the 20th century. He, he died in 1998. Is a guy named Leslie Newbegin. He was a, a British missionary and, and scholar. He, he pointed out how in sophisticated societies like ours, in a postmodern kind of society like ours, he, he said these things in 1991 in a series of lectures called Truth to Tell, speaking truth to power in public truth. He said that we have a tendency to say, oh, religious beliefs, those are just like private beliefs. You just kind of keep your own religious privacy, you know, truth for you, and I'll keep my own religious truth for me, right? Like you have your ideas about God and divine things, that's cool. I have mine, and we're just not going to really talk about it because it doesn't really matter because you have what's true for you, and I have what's true for me. This was in 1991. It's, it's getting more and more that way, isn't it? But Newbegin says, no, the gospel is public truth. The, the truth of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is rooted in historical fact. It happened. It actually happened that God came to earth as a man, as a human who put on flesh and then died as a propitiation for our sins. That means he took what was the wrath that was due to us for our sins, the penalty of death, and he turned it into favor. He gave us grace unmerited favor of God in exchange for our sins. He gave us perfect righteousness. That's public truth for all people. That changes our perspective on how we view power, on how we view political power, and how we speak truth to the power of culture, the power of politics, the power of those who are in charge. You know, as Russell Moore has reminded us in our Wednesday night series, we as Christians probably never were a moral majority, right? Even in the Bible Belt. And, and if we ever were, we certainly aren't now. We, we've lost the culture wars. That ship has sailed. Just the sad truth of it, right? But the biblical calling has never been to be a moral majority who can force others to live the way that we want them to live. That's never been the way of Jesus. The Bible calls us to be a prophetic minority who speaks truth into the culture as a prophetic minority speaking actual grace and truth into a culture that desperately needs to hear it. He's just speaking the facts of the gospel. And it sounds crazy, of course, to Festus, this Roman guy, just as the gospel sounds increasingly strange in our own culture. Keep reading, verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa II was known to be this, this pious Jew, so Paul forces him now to take a stand, basically forcing the question, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the promised Messiah? If so, then he is Lord of all. 
And you must acknowledge that and give your life to him. I love how Paul does this. He's on trial, right? But he puts Agrippa and Festus on the, the defense, right? He becomes the prosecutor all of a sudden. Agrippa responds with a, a brush off, right? Verse 28, Agrippa says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? I'm far too sophisticated for you, Paul. Verse 29, Paul says, hey, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who are in this audience hall would hear me this day that you would become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul loves these people, and he wants them all to come to a saving faith the only way they can through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father. But Agrippa's done at this point. He doesn't want to be put on the defense. He stands up, calls the whole thing off. Verse 30, the king rose, and the governor and his sister Bernice, and those who were sitting along with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Of course. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, Paul never takes the easy way out, right? He's bound and determined to speak truth to power in the center of power. The geographic center of power of that day was Rome. He was going to Rome to speak the truth of the gospel to Caesar himself face to face. So what does that mean for us today? Well, for starters, do you believe that this gospel is public truth? Do you believe that it's actually rooted in history? That it has factual basis? If so, then it's true for all people. We can't have private individual truth with little t, right? If it's true for you, then it's true for everyone. True with a capital T, that's what truth means. If that is true, then it changes everything about the way we live, about how we see the world. Our perspective must change then. If we believe this, then we should also check to see if the fruit in our lives, if our deeds are actually keeping in with what we say about the gospel. If our trajectory is actually headed towards Jesus Christ, then our lives have to reflect the truth of the gospel by the fruit that we bear. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. Does your life bear those out more and more as you grow in your walk with Christ? It's a journey of discipleship. Do our actions both privately and publicly, corporately, and individually in our homes, and our workplaces? Do our, our lives and our actions line up with this public truth of the gospel? Do we serve as a model to the world around us of what that should look like, of kingdom principles in action, actually living out the fruit of the Spirit in us? Is our witness to the world, again, think about your own witness and Woodmont's witness. Is our witness to the world one of truth with a capital T? And is it one of grace? Incredible grace. Amazing grace. We are clearly called to speak truth to power in our world today. The scriptures bear that out over and over again. But not merely through just informing ourselves and voting. That's good. That's a good place to start. You're definitely called to do that as a believer, to inform yourself and engage. But it's more than that. It's, it's also more than just posting something on social media about politics. 
It's more than, than tweeting at the government. It's, it's more than all those things. Leslie Newbegin closes his book out with this. The church, with a capital C, must affirm the truth of the gospel. The fact of the sovereignty of Christ as the sole Lord and Savior. And we must affirm the Trinitarian faith, the given starting point, the dogma which must shape all our thinking and revising to affirm this in season and out of season, whether they hear or refuse to hear, is in fact the most radical political action that we can take. I love that. It is the case that many Christians, he goes on to say, have a, a rather tepid faith in this understanding of fundamental dogma and therefore tend to invest the zeal and the commitment which are properly owed to it in particular moral and political causes. We as Christians can get so distracted by our little political causes or our little moral causes that we lose sight of the gospel. May we fix our eyes on the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Let that be what drives our whole trajectory. Then all of our other deeds, including how we speak truth to power, will bear fruit in keeping with our repentance as we move closer and closer to Jesus Christ as Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for the challenge that you give us in your word to, to be like the Apostle Paul who boldly proclaimed truth to power, who spoke the facts of the gospel to a perverted justice system that was flawed and broken. And he spoke out of compassion, not out of vitriol or culture warring, but he spoke because he loved, and he loved the way that you love. May we as a church body, Lord, bear faithfully the witness, just like we did in 1970, to the rest of the culture to show what a gospel-oriented, kingdom-minded community looks like. It doesn't look like the culture got around us. Help us to, to not shy away from public truth of the gospel, but to stand boldly on the facts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the only hope the world has, Lord. May we have compassion for the world and boldly proclaim it as we leave this place today, as we are commissioned to go forth as your hands and feet in a world that desperately needs it. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in your high and your holy name. The name of Jesus Christ, our only Savior and Lord. Amen. This morning, maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the first time. I'd love to talk to you about what that means, to surrender everything you have, just like Paul was confronting Agrippa with. If you want to make that decision today, if you feel the Spirit leading you to make that decision to follow Christ as Lord, I'd love to talk with you about it down here at our time of invitation. If you need to join the church, if you're uh, not a member, but you've been hanging out here a while and, and now you're ready to, to pledge membership, we believe in church membership here. And, and joining yourself to what God's doing through your time, your talent, and treasure, investing the life of youth and children and preschoolers, whatever it may be, uh, you know, serving on, on different ministry teams. 
We invite you to come forward today and join this church as a member. Maybe you've never been baptized and, and you've you believed in Jesus, but you've, you've never followed his example of, of being immersed in a, a, a beautiful outward symbol of the inward reality of your death to yourself and your resurrection to a whole new kind of life with a changed perspective. Whatever it is that you need to decide today, don't leave this place today without making that decision. Let's stand and sing our hymn of response, Footsteps of Jesus.